0: Welcome to Counterculture Parents. I'm Kurt Brunner, your host. Thanks for listening. Today we're going to talk about the news. Depending on the source of news that we select, we may sense antagonism towards what we believe and what we're trying to instill in our children's lives. Or, equally problematic, we may find ourselves becoming angry and that anger being fueled by those who rant and rave about what's going on in our culture. Neither one is really helpful when it comes to trying to find encouragement in the journey of countercultural parenting, which is why I'm excited to introduce you to a new service that's very well done because it reflects journalism as journalism is intended to be. Objective where it can be objective and yet acknowledging its perspective when it's relevant to telling the story. One of the goals of this podcast has been to introduce our listeners to other resources that can be helpful and encouraging along the journey of countercultural parenting. If you've been listening to this show, you'll recall that we recently interviewed Steve and Candace Waters, and Harrison, who you'll be hearing from next, is their son. He himself is the product of countercultural parenting.
1: Most of us have a love-hate relationship with the news. We want to know what's going on around us and stay informed, but we're easily overwhelmed and depressed by what we hear. Every day, podcasts and news feeds are full of disasters of one kind or another, and the reporters usually have their own spin on what caused the disaster. It's climate change, or wokeism, or racism, or progressive ideology. As countercultural parents, you probably feel that something is wrong with most news sources, but you can't quite explain what. G.K. Chesterton, a Christian writer working in the decades between Charles Dickens and C.S. Lewis, shared some thoughts on the shortfalls of journalism in his story, The Ball and the Cross. He says, quote, It is the one great weakness of journalism as a picture of our modern existence that it must be a picture made up entirely of exceptions, unquote. The papers cover stories about people who fall off scaffoldings, not the ones who manage to stay on them. Chesterton's takeaway is, quote, They meaning the busy editors, cannot announce the happiness of mankind at all. They cannot describe all the forks that are not stolen, or the marriages that are not dissolved. The sad reality is that most news sources focus on what's wrong, or perverse, or disruptive with the world, because it's the unusual that sells. They rarely focus on what's going right. That's part of what makes the World and Everything in It podcast from the World News Group so helpful for countercultural parents. The name of the show comes from Acts 17.24, where Paul is speaking to the people of Athens. While describing the unknown God whom the Athenians worship in ignorance, Paul declares, The God who made the world and everything in it does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The World and Everything in It podcast is committed to doing sound journalism, Grounded in facts and biblical truth, which will inform, educate, and inspire listeners. World journalists know that beneath all the headlines, God is upholding the universe by the word of his power. I discovered the world and everything in it in college. I was raised in a Christian home by parents who met doing master's degrees in public policy. Their mentors helped them see that the greatest impact they could have on the world would not be in Congress, but at home, with the kids they raised. I was raised to love hard work, to love the fellowship of the local church, and to love good books. In 2018, when I went to Boyce College, the undergraduate program of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, I pursued a degree in politics, philosophy, and economics, because I wanted to learn about how the world works. During my sophomore year, my economics professor played clips for our class from a podcast called The World and Everything in It. Later, I started listening on my own and discovered that it was a weekday show that has the breadth of NPR, but with a biblical worldview. Every episode follows a format of newscast, interviews, features, and commentary. The first six minutes of the podcast feature a preview of What's in the Day's episode, followed by a newscast with short updates on top headlines. For example, here's part of a newscast from October 27th.
2: For World Radio, I'm Kent Covington. Russian missiles and Iranian-made drones continue to target civilian populations in Ukraine. Officials said Tuesday that Russian missiles killed two people, including a pregnant woman in the city of Dnipro. Several others are in critical condition. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says Vladimir Putin is failing on the battlefield.
3: He's responding with more indiscriminate attacks on Ukrainian cities against civilians and against critical infrastructure.
2: Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, who is Jewish, continues to call on Israel to step up its support of Ukraine. Kyiv is urging Israel to share its air defense expertise to help Ukraine fend off Russian aerial attacks. Prime Minister. The new British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, on Wednesday made his first appearance in Parliament since taking office. He received a warm welcome, but also faced plenty of criticism from the opposition party. Labour Party leader Keir Starmer.
3: There's a new Tory at the top, but as always with them party first, country second.
2: Starmer questioned whether Sunak had been honest about what it will take to fix the nation's problems. Sunak's response.
1: I have been honest. We will have to take difficult decisions to restore economic stability and confidence.
2: The prime minister has appointed a government that mixes allies with experienced ministers from the administrations of his two immediate predecessors as he tries to tackle Britain's growing economic problems. I'm Kent Covington. For more top news, along with features and commentary, visit us online at WNG.org.
1: Next, there's one or two in-depth news interviews or reports. On Monday, these include Legal Docket, which covers oral arguments at the Supreme Court, and the Monday Money Beat, which covers the economy with economist David Bonson. Here's a clip from the October 31st edition of Legal Docket.
4: It's Monday, October 31st, and this is The World and Everything in It from listener-supported World Radio. So glad you've joined us today. Good morning. I'm Mary Reichardt.
5: And I'm Nick Eicher. The Supreme Court is back today after a two-week break from oral arguments, so we will use today to catch up on some arguments from earlier this month. First, overtime pay and who should get it. The Fair Labor Standards Act requires employers to pay certain employees time and a half, that is, for the hours they work beyond a standard
0: 40-hour and the regularity of payments.
4: So Justice Clarence Thomas observed what most people probably believe about pay.
6: The average person looking at it, when someone makes over $200,000 a year, they normally think of that as an indication that it's a salary. And not, then you certainly don't normally think of someone making $200,000 a year as a day laborer. And so that's, you've, you've got this ill fit. If you were talking about $20,000 a year, you would be, people would say that makes sense.
4: Justice Brett Kavanaugh pointed out a conflict between the Labor Department's regulations and the statute that it's supposed to carry out. Surely someone has already litigated this. That.
5: I'm just saying if it's not here, if the statutory argument is not here,
6: I'm sure someone's going to raise it because it's strong. Well, uh, well, you just asked about it, so somebody definitely will raise it now yeah, if, they weren't, yeah, if they weren't already. Yeah.
4: Employer Helix warns that if former employee Hewitt wins, the courts can expect a flood of lawsuits so that people who already earn a lot of money will get a whole lot more. All right, on to our second...
1: Article. And here's a clip from the October 31st edition of the Monday Money Beat.
4: Well, next up on The World and Everything in It, the Monday Money Beat.
5: So here's his question. If governments can intervene in markets to help alleviate poverty and all of the social ills that go with poverty, shouldn't they intervene even if that interferes with efficient markets? In other words, is that not a small price to pay in order to do what's right?
3: Um, I would inverse the question and say, how can we possibly trust government to alleviate poverty when they've now spent mega trillions of dollars on it over a 50-year period, and we have the exact same poverty rate that we did when they started? Mm. So I don't trust any sinful institution to fully handle, but I do think we have an obligation To find the best possible solution. And the best possible solution is indisputably in the private sector. But even if I accept his premise that we're just gonna pretend the efficiency could be equal or could be even better, I then have to answer it this way that's not charity. If you solve for poverty with compulsion, then what you've done is say, we're not going to do charity. We're not going to do virtue. We're not going to do on a level of historical accuracy on basic vocabulary and then on the economic nature of the topic, all three scream for the government getting out of the world of poverty alleviation and beg for a virtuous populace to take seriously the needs of their neighbors. All right. we'll keep those questions coming.
1: Tuesday and Thursday feature interviews and news reports on headline issues ranging from new prime ministers to parental rights and education. Washington Wednesday features interviews and in-depth reports on political stories like the election cycle or battling inflation. To wrap up the week, Culture Friday features conversations with Christian apologists on how Christians can think biblically about cultural events like the sexual revolution and persecution of believers around the world. Here's a clip from the July 22nd Culture Friday. Host Myrna Brown had the opportunity to meet up with John Stone Street of the Colson Center and Andrew Walker of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary at a conference.
7: Well, a lot of discussion uh, this week on using truthful language, I think that's how it was termed, instead of false constructs like biological male, transgender woman, transgender this and that. Why do you think that resonated with so many?
5: I think the conversation around the language that we use, um, it speaks to the reality that language is attempting to name reality. And if we find ourselves playing by the word games and um, word constructs of a culture
6: that doesn't believe in our understanding of truth, um, we're now playing according to their I think that's exactly right. I I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said, if words aren't worth fighting for, what on earth would be? (laughs) And because words are at the base of how we understand and perceive reality, uh, the postmodernist, Almost got this right. Postmodernists said that language creates reality, essentially, um, and that language refers to other language and other language, and eventually we have reality. Uh, It's not human language that creates reality. It's God's language that creates reality. This is what we see in John 1. There's an ontological description of reality, which begins with the word, which is why human words, because we're made in his image, are so absolutely critically important. Now, what's happened now is that the postmodern use of language has now evolved into this critical theory use of language. And there's this real mood and culture where we immediately, uh, based on labels, language we put on groups, identify some people as the good guys and some people as the bad guys. So people don't often realize, to, to Andrew's point, that when we get drafted into using the language, we're actually being drafted into taking sides, here are the good guys, here are the bad guys. And that's a real problem. Now, this is also, I think, a wise warning for us as we try to communicate across worldview lines because it gives you a very effective place to start in a conversation, which is a question that I was taught years ago. I think every Christian should have it in their back pocket whenever they're having a conversation. And that is, well, what do you mean by that? (laughs) In other words, fight for the definition of words. I remember once being on a plane with this lady and she's like, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I work for this Christian organization. And she bucked back and said, well, I'm an atheist, prove me wrong. This was the beginning of a three-hour conversation, right? And she started by saying, prove to me that God exists. Now I went to seminary like I paid a lot of money to know the answer to that question but I'd learned this this tactic and I said, well what do you mean by God? And she goes on to describe, you know, this grumpy old man who can't wake you to strike you dead with a lightning bolt. And I'm like, you're describing Zeus. Like, I don't believe in Zeus, you know? And the meaning of words means so much. You think about words in our culture, like love and justice and freedom and equality and and inclusion. These are words that are thrown around. I just heard this phrase last night, and I thought it was so good. They're not just conversation stoppers. They're thought stoppers. They stop people from thinking, Uh, what do these words mean? And I think God has been so gracious to gift us with that, the minds that we can understand the language that's at the root of reality that points us ultimately to him. And we can ask these questions uh, and and hopefully uh, continue to point people to the truth. Even we do live in a time where language is tyrannical. It just controls our lives. And I think that's an effective way to fight back.
1: After these in-depth reports, There's typically a short, amusing story called a kicker. These are stories about garbage men finding lost wedding rings or people finding bears in outhouses. For example, here's a kicker from August 23rd.
5: A diamond wedding ring is back on the finger of a woman from Massachusetts thanks to a little help from a good Samaritan. Francesca Teal told NBC10 Boston she was tossing a football with her husband on a New Hampshire beach when suddenly...
1: I saw the ball just pop my finger right here, and I saw these two rings just slide right off my finger.
5: Yeah, and just like that, the wedding band that once belonged to her great-grandmother was gone, mm. or so it seemed. The Good Samaritan saw her appeal on Facebook and sprang into action. He donned a wetsuit and a headlamp and spent the next three days searching for the ring before discovering it in shallow water under four inches of sand.
1: You know, overwhelmed with emotion, crying, looked at my husband, said it was found. Like, no way, we were just so pumped.
5: Yeah, when he found it, he sent Teal a picture of it and then sent along this message, please tell me this is the ring so I can finally get off this beach deal said she was overwhelmed by the man's kindness it's the world and everything in
1: finally there's a feature story or commentary from a veteran reporter these features are an example of where world tries to announce the happiness of mankind as chesterton talks about by focusing on how people in various circumstances seek to overcome challenges as they pursue god's call on their lives whether they're missionaries or mechanics or mothers at home Here's an example of a Segment 3 feature story I had the opportunity to help put together as a freelance editor for World.
4: Today is Thursday, October 13th. This is World Radio, and we thank you for listening. Good morning. I'm Mary Rygard.
2: And I'm Paul Butler. Coming next on The World and Everything in It, Vacation Bible School. But probably not the one that you're thinking about.
4: Not unless you're thinking of teaching VBS in one of the most dangerous places on earth, a city that averages eight murders every day. Well, that's where world senior writer Kim Henderson went for this report, Juarez, Mexico, and to a church doing good in the heart of the city.
7: From our crew in Juarez, a four-year-old girl gunned down during her kindergarten graduation. It happened... Violence scars everyone in Juarez even the very young. Sharing the gospel in such a hostile environment requires people with a real sense of purpose, like this team of VBS workers gearing up for the big week ahead. It's Sunday afternoon at Iglesia Bautista Pacto de Gracia. Here among smiling children asking for chilies with their snacks, you can almost forget about the armed guardsmen down the street, the ones surrounded by sandbags watching for attacks. But no one who lives here can forget about the hostile environment in Juarez. Nora Marino is on the VBS team. She's also someone who has suffered loss. Her 21 year old son got involved with the wrong people and they murdered him. Through an interpreter, she explains why it's important to point the kids at VBS to Christ. Porque la juventud
4: de, de hoy, uh
6: the youth today's youth are uh, uh, feeling that it's time to take their to make their own decisions about life and uh, maybe they're being influenced by maybe schools or maybe bad friends and they're making bad decisions
7: but even against that backdrop the members of iglesia bautista pato de gracia don't crusade against drugs and cartels and corruption they just lift up christ <laughs> And Pastor Torres thinks that's the only fix for what's wrong in Juarez and everywhere else in the world. Activities like this, that BBS, are just an eternal investment and not, not only for their souls but even for our society that, that children here will hear the gospel and, and become good men for their generation. Reporting for World, I'm Kim Henderson, in Juarez, Mexico.
1: The world and everything in it is willing to go to hard places and deal with difficult subjects. But the journalists who contribute to the show every Monday through Friday know that there's more to the story than just what's wrong with the world. They help cast a vision for how to live life trusting God and his design, which runs against the grain of popular culture. I began this piece with Chesterton's thoughts on the weakness of journalism. Let me end with C.S. Lewis's closing thought in his essay, On Living in an Atomic Age. With so much conversation these days about threats to humanity from climate change or nuclear war or various political ideologies, Lewis's words are a helpful reset for where our countercultural priorities should lie. Quote, those who care for something else more than civilization are the only people by whom civilization is at all likely to be preserved those who want heaven most have served earth best those who love man less than god do the most for man i'm harrison waters
0: I strongly encourage you to begin listening to the world and everything in it as a new service that is aligned to rather than antagonistic to Christian beliefs and values. It's done with excellence, as you've heard. It goes in depth. It's playful. And it's hopeful, all of which are important as we continue the journey as counterculture parents. You'll find a link to that podcast in the notes section of today's episode. Many thanks to Harrison Waters for walking us through this episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Counterculture Parents is brought to you in part by dryfaithhome.com. We help churches reach and disciple busy families. If you appreciate this podcast, then I encourage you to support your local church, which is your most important reinforcing community.